Hello and welcome to another episode of your members-only Ask an Attorney webinar. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and I'm not the attorney. This is Tom Grieve. <laughs> he is our criminal defense attorney. That is, is, you know, is, is that the official title? Yeah, I'll go with criminal defense attorney. I'm a former state prosecutor turned criminal defense attorney. Um, I'm a partner at the largest criminal defense law firm in the state of Wisconsin. Many of our other attorneys are also former state prosecutors. So we've got a lot of experience kicking around um, when we toss around case ideas. And we need all of them for Kevin here. So. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks a lot, Tom. A lot of pressure on me now. Uh, this time through, we're talking about um, using your gun in a crowd. Right. And, uh, and the first thing that comes to my mind is target isolation and the fact that people are responsible for everything that they do with their firearm, especially every round that comes out. So um, let's, let's just first talk about that. What could you end up, if you use your gun improperly in a crowd, what could you end up, if you shoot the wrong person, sure. what can happen? Well, let's start out with the same way that we always start out on, right? And by now, hopefully if you've been watching this, you kind of know what I'm going to say, or you know exactly what I'm going to say, and that is check your local listings for what your laws may be. There's an important doctrine I want folks to know about. It's called transferred intent. Here's how it goes. If I'm in a bar fight with Kevin, not that that would ever happen, but no, if no. I was, right, and if for some strange reason I were to try to swing and I missed him and I, pinch, I punched someone else, um, I could be guilty of battery, which is a crime that, that requires intent, even though I wasn't actually trying to strike that other person. Why? Because I had the intent to hit Kevin, and I missed, and I hit the other person. So that's something where you have transferred intent that can actually carry. So you have to be careful about what's going on. Now, likewise, what we're talking about here, Kevin, could actually help you out, because if you had the same self-defense issues work out for you, and then depending upon however your local laws may play out, then you could actually be using the transferred intent kind of as that transferred self-defense, if you will, mm -hmm. to actually try to defend yourself. But at the end of the day, guess what? You can avoid all those problems with, with proper training, proper target isolation, make sure you're using the right ammo, the right, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that comes back to one of the questions we got up on the screen over here, um, is, is how do you decide whether or not you should engage? And honestly, that's a tactical question. It's, it's going to... Uh, deal with everything that you're seeing all around you. But I'm thinking, you know, lots of people moving in lots of different directions. I'm going to choose not to engage. Uh, it's know. a scary situation. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a moral situation is, mm -hmm. is if, uh, as much as it's a legal one. Because you're going to have to live with the consequences of either pulling the, tr the trigger or not pulling the trigger. And you're going to have to be able to wake up and look at yourself in the face if you, um, if you screw that up. And it's hard to say which is going to be the safer way to go. And everybody's going to have to reach that own decision. I think that part of that decision point is going to be informed by things like how good of a shot am I? How familiar am I at shooting at moving targets? Maybe if the yeah. bad guy's moving. How much target isolation can you get? What are you comfortable with? These are all things, these are just some of the ideas that are going to be shaping and forming that decision process. But, um, boy, I, I think every one of these is truly a case-by-case -case scenario. Um, when you're weighing your options, yeah. do I shoot, do I not shoot, do I try to escape, do I not? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, it's uh, remember the three elements that you're thinking about um, when, you, when you're out there. You have target identification identification, target acquisition, and target isolation. Those are the three elements that you need before you can take a shot. And you also have to consider how big of a risk factor is what's going on around you. If you shoot and you miss and you hit somebody else, are you doing more damage than if you didn't shoot? 
Obviously, you're doing more damage to someone who's innocent, but if somebody's just randomly shooting into the crowd and he's going to kill dozens of people, and you take one shot and you miss, and the second shot hits and you stop that action, you know what? You're probably gonna be doing okay. You might be able to live with yourself. You're certainly gonna have some responsibility, but it, it's a balance, it, it really it is. It is, and, and keep in mind something else as well, which is, okay, bad guy's shooting, he has a handgun, let's say, and you pull out your concealed carry and start shooting back. Two cops come around the corner, what are they gonna do? Right. How do they know who's the good, good guy yeah. or bad guy? Or what if another concealed carry person just walks around the corner because they are trying to get involved, whether it's the right or wrong call, it's the call that they made and you're gonna have to live with that, you're gonna have to deal with that. So you are, the second that you, you produce a firearm and that is now in plain view, you have also made yourself a target and you need to be cognizant of that fact. Thank you very much. Um, next, next question that comes up is, you know, when you're in a crowd, we are in the age of cell phone video. Right. And people are going to be shooting video of everything that goes on, especially if there's a, an incident that is slowly escalating and people can get their phones out and start, start recording some video of this. Right. And that stuff probably ends up on social media. Is that valuable that, you know, in the aftermath of all this, can you point to the police officers and say, I think that person was filming or I think that person was filming or something like that? Is, is that going to help you? Well, it's, it's a little bit good news, bad news. And here's what I mean is that all the people who take the video, all the, their friends who are commenting on the video, that's all going to help to shape some of the evidence and the public perception. The good news to it is that it's creating more evidence. And rather than relying on some sort of, trust me, very unreliable eyewitness account, um, I have yet to deal with a, a shooting case, or frankly, most cases, where the cops saying X, the suspects saying the same thing, and three witnesses are all agreeing. That, I mean, that, that's an imaginary scenario, folks. You weren't, you're living in la-la land if you think that's what's going to happen. Everybody's telling a different story. So what I like about that is it at least pins down what the evidence is. But keep in mind that it never shows the whole story. Right. You started out the question, Kevin, by talking about, okay, people see an escalating scenario. People don't have the cell phone out for the first thing that happens, or maybe even the second or third thing that happens. All they're gonna show, or quite conceivably could show, is you returning fire on someone. And yeah. that could make you look like the bad guy. They're, they don't show the crazy person shouting the threats and firing into the crowd. They just show you returning fire. So it's going to be important for the defense attorney to know what they're doing, to know what they're talking about, to be able to tell a compelling narrative about what the truth of whatever it is that happened is and how that video, whatever it is, however damning it may actually seem, they have to diffuse it sometimes mm -hmm. to show, okay, here's really what you're seeing. This is the segment of the story from this particular angle of what you're seeing. Otherwise, it just looks like you're firing into a crowd. Yeah, there's a guy in a dark shirt shooting a gun. That, right. You know, guy right. over there just started shooting. So it, it can be problematic, and this is where you need to have a skilled defense attorney, skilled defense team working in order to figure out how do all the pieces of the evidence fit together. But I would not by any stretch automatically assume it's just going to be universally positive to have something like that. You could be dealing with a lot of negative. I mean, consider having friends or family members or relatives or your boss or manager or employees or customers. If you own a business, good luck uh, with all the reviews that, yeah. that's, that appear yeah. overnight giving you one stars saying, you know, if, they, if you're identified as a guy shooting into a crowd, even though you are actually possibly saving lives. Yeah. These are all things you got to think about. Yeah, uh, lots of stuff going on in there. Um, Cody wants to know what kind of commands we should be giving to people when we're in a crowd and, and we want them to get out of the way. I'm, I'm going to take this one. I want people to get down. I am going to be screaming at the top of my lungs that people need to get down. 
Um, and the reason I say that, um, you know, on the ground, on the floor, anything like that, is that typically the bad guy, he's not going to listen to those commands and immediately get down to the ground. So if all of the innocent bystanders drop to the ground, then we have target isolation. We have someone standing out there, you know, who's, you know, it's, it's like a, a silhouette uh, among the crowd. So um, that's what I'm going to ask for what kind of commands. Anything that you'd, you'd want to? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I, I've, Zero disagreement with anything you just said. Um, just speaking only as the defense attorney side of it, I could see that you know a lot of people are hardwired of those are the kind of commands that a police officer is going to give, as you just heard, yeah. a law enforcement <laughs> officer instruct. Yeah. This, these are the type of commands I would give. What I like about that is that I think that when you go to school, when you grow up, a part of us, a part of our psychology these days are just hardwired to accept certain things. We all intuitively, or most of us intuitively, have some sort of hardwired response to authority. And there's certain words and there's certain phrasing that just kind of trigger it. If I say, listen up, we all intuitively kind of sit up in our seats and just listen to that, right? Mm -hmm. We've all been grilled by teachers who have said that, at least I know I was, and things of that nature. When you start using hard commands, law enforcement speak, Hopefully, I would uh, that it's going to show that number one, you've got some training under your belt, which could be used to help you later on, and number two is that absolutely, hopefully, it's going to wind up saving some lives as well, and it's going to lead to number three, which is identifying you as one of the good guys, not one of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Hey, the next question up here is um, someone read about the run hide fight situation, and they want a little bit of refresher on run hide fight. Obviously, that's the sequence that we talk to people about in an active shooter situation. Um, first thing you want to do is run. You want to try to escape because, again, you don't want to be involved in that if you don't have to be. And if you can't escape, we want you to hide. And when you're hiding someplace, that means a place where you are relatively secure. Get behind a locked door or something like that. If you can't get to a place where you can lock yourself inside and feel relatively secure, keep running. And then fight, well, that's your last option. And you only want to fight if you're at your last option. Again, the best fight is the one you're not in. When you decide to do any of those, be all in. If you're going to run, commit to the movement. Move quickly, move directly to someplace, and get going. If you're hiding, hide completely and make sure you can lock the door. And if you're fighting, fight with everything you have until either you stop moving or the bad guy stops moving. That, that's really all there is to it there. And keep in mind the costs as well of... If you do decide to fight, even if you're the right guy, even if you come out on top and you survive, um, yeah, maybe some people will worship you as a hero. Don't plan on that. Plan on a lot of judgment. Plan on a lot of blowback. Plan on a lot of expenses, possible bail expenses, lost work. We're assuming you can hold on to your business. Like we talked about all those negative reviews and things like that. Those are all possibilities. We're talking about judgment from peers, coworkers, you name it. Uh, it can be extraordinarily expensive, and that's before getting to the most important component, which is, of course, the psychological component to this whole thing. We're assuming that we're not spending a life behind bars because you followed your training, you did all the right decisions, you made a good shoot. Um, it can be extraordinarily expensive, not only from a cost perspective of hiring all those people and putting together the teams and so forth, but also from a personal, emotional, and psychological perspective as well. Yeah, and, and that you say judgment. The, the next question up is from a guy named Frank, and Frank wants to know, what if I choose not to help someone? And he says, people are going to call me a coward, but am I morally or, or civilly or criminally responsible if I hear the shooting and just bail out? 
No. I mean, (laughs) look, I'm I'm not a priest, I'm not a rabbi, um, so you're going to have to address kind of the religious and the moral components to the appropriate avenues. But speaking as a defense attorney, I'm unfamiliar with any law out there that requires somebody under these circumstances to use deadly force to save lives. Um, In fact, just the opposite, you will be held up to scrutiny, at least legal scrutiny at a minimum, uh, if you do use deadly force, even if it is entirely appropriate. So I'm not trying to advocate that somebody should or should not do something. I'm only trying to advocate that folks sit down and seriously think about and engage with the issues that are going on both at eye level as well as beneath the surface so that you're aware of what you're getting into because God forbid if you ever find yourself in a situation like this, you're going to have moments to react and make a lifetime worth of decisions. Not only for you, but for your family, for your loved ones, and everybody else who's going to be affected by that decision. So think about these things now and understand about where you're at and what your feeling is on this. Because God forbid, if the moment arises, you're not going to have time to think the whole thing through. You're going to have time to react and God willing as well, follow your training. Yeah. And again, you know, maybe you should try to escape because we put it this way is that um, people who are involved in the concealed carry lifestyle, I get the impression that they automatically think they're going to win the fight. And in a situation like this, and there's bullets flying all around, and you decide to wade into that fight, and you get shot, your family is paying for that. Not just you, everybody else that you ever knew is paying for that too. So Tom is absolutely right. Think this through beforehand. Start thinking about this now. What might you want to do? It might be a hard thing to run away and let other people get shot, but you have people who care about you and people who you need to take care of, so you need to think about that. Remember, it's self-defense. You're, you're defending yourself. You have to, it starts with yourself. So, All right, how do we keep from being shot by the police when drawing your firearm in a situation? Well, I'm going to tell you, you know, don't point your gun at the police and follow the commands immediately. If you hear someone say, drop your gun, and that person looks to be like a police officer, get your gun down on the ground right away. But anything from a legal standpoint. <laughs> yeah, don't get shot by the police. Uh, follow their directions, <laughs> yeah. follow their commands. Um, understand that... A lot of times, you know, in Hollywood, on TV, law enforcement is portrayed as this superhuman force of robocops who are acting without emotion to um, follow the dictates and the policies and the procedures of whatever it is. That is not real life, right? right? I mean, these folks are flesh and blood human beings just like you and me, and at the end of the day, they kiss their, their spouse, their significant other, goodbye in the morning, and they want to come home just like the rest of us do. Uh, don't expect them to make the perfect decision. Doesn't mean that they're bad people, but don't expect them to make perfect decisions and don't make their jobs harder than they have to be. They already have a hard enough job. And if we're talking about an active shooter, live fire scenario, it doesn't get any worse than that. Mm-hmm. Adding more components and more questions of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, that's costing them seconds and possibly you your life. So um, that's certainly an extra wrinkle. I guess, mm-hmm. let me ask you this. If I'm sitting at home watching this, um, as a law enforcement officer, would you want citizens to jump in to help out? Well, if, you know, I I don't want to have anything more confusing when I get to the scene. So if a citizen is deciding to help out, what I would really like to see is that person fighting from a position of cover. Um, Typically, the active shooter is up and moving and trying to get a, a, a whole bunch of people dead. He wants a body count. He's out there moving and and moving around. And if you don't look like an active shooter when I arrive to the scene, 
okay, then I'm really not going to treat you like an active shooter immediately. But if you've got your gun down in the low ready and you're hiding behind a, a pillar or a garbage can or something like that, and I tell you, drop your gun and lay down flat on the floor, I want that done immediately, you know, because I don't know who's shooting or who's shooting at what in there. But if I come into the room and there's one person standing up with a rifle and he's shooting in all directions, and there's another person hiding behind a garbage can with his gun out, I'm taking the guy first who's standing up because he's doing the most damage. And then if you start shooting at me, yep, I'm going to shoot back. But at that point, I need to slow down and assess. But like you said, we're all human. We don't know how we're going to react when we get into that spot. Right. So. right. Next question up is from Rick. What happens if we have a pass-through shot and we hit an innocent bystander? Well, this is where we get back to that doctrine of transferred intent again. So um, I would argue if you did that and if that happened and if it struck someone else and finally if you got charged with a crime mm -hmm. that you may have been privileged to act under your state's laws. Now keep in mind, check your local listings to assure that that applies in your state. But that's probably what your criminal defense attorney is going to be looking for. They're going to be looking to see whether or not if you were privileged to act initially with your intent, with your state of mind, with your mens rea. We'll throw that out as our Latin term of the day. Wow. Mens rea, that's right, that's right. Heard it here, folks. Mens rea, M-E-N-S, and then new word, R-E-A. Uh, that has to do with your criminal state of mind. Is it intent, purposeful, knowledgeful? Is it criminally negligent? Whatever it might be. Whatever the state or the government needs to prove, there's almost always a mens rea component. So. Um, that that component was lacking because really you were intending to do something that was privileged. So again, you have to check with your local laws to make sure that something like that is there, but that's probably what's gonna be happening. And also for that matter, look, if you have ammunition that's gonna be running a significant risk of pass-throughs, I'm saying it's the wrong ammunition. Right, right? yeah, and, and it rolls right into the next question. Don wants to know if the ammunition will have any impact on what the prosecutor's looking at. Um, you know, if you're using hollow points versus full metal jacket or if you're shooting a 45 or a 10 millimeter or something like that, um, does it become a question of overkill? Um, what happens? Is sure. that an element the prosecutor looks at? Yeah, so uh, uh, nobody's going to like what I have to say. So coming from the trenches of real life courtrooms, um, understand that most prosecutors, very few of them in fact, in my experience, are actually gun people. Um, they don't really know a lot about firearms. Again, if you're in a more rural area, that's gonna change. In a more urban area, that's just my experience. Um, and I don't say that to attack them or to disparage them. It's just an observation of reality. Here's the trap you fall into. If you fall into, a, if you, I've seen prosecutors characterize in court a hollow point as a cop killer bullet. I've seen prosecutors characterize full metal jackets, and of course that's the other option basically, right? As military grade, great. So it's okay. basically a, you, you know, uh, heads I win, tails you lose. That's effectively the scenario. And you gotta remember that this is what these folks are trained to do, is to exploit every possible advantage that they are given to seek convictions. Now, hopefully they're tempering that with expectations of reality and ethics and everything else, but just understand that that's the, that's the heads I win, tails you lose mentality that you kind of walk into. There's a lot of different options you can try to use to try to inoculate yourself against that. A common one that folks sometimes, particularly trainers, sometimes recommend is learn what kind of calibers and ammunition local law enforcement might be carrying and copy what they're doing. Because at least if you're on the stand, God forbid, under these circumstances, and the prosecutor tries to pin you down on, well, so you're using cop killer ammunition because it was hollow point, you can reply, 
look, I'm sorry, ma'am or sir, but I'm using the exact same ammunition to protect my life, my family's life, as this bailiff is here too, and that sheriff's deputy is over there as well. Nothing more, nothing less. And it at least gives you a little bit of a pushback. Um, but otherwise, no, they're, they're, these are, in my experience, not, they're not sophisticated in firearm knowledge. They know what the police tell them, and they know what the media tells them, I hate to say it. Yeah. And that's kind of where it stops. All right, and they're probably looking at the, the real evidence surrounding the incident rather than just what kind of bullet you were using because it's They are, but things like that, you know, if you put the Punisher grips or decals or something like that, that can definitely go to, to your state of mind at the time. So you have to be careful about, and I'm not one of those people who say never modify your firearm. I'm just saying do it sensibly, right? Don't make it so it, it is no longer safe to, to use. Uh, don't make it where a prosecutor can argue that you're some sort of bloodthirsty uh, person that's out there because you had all these vengeance icons. I mean, mm -hmm. don't use common sense. All right. Um, next question up. A couple of different people are asking if we could do a ammo test, uh, handgun versus AR shooting into a wall. Yes, we can probably get that done, but not right now because Tom and I are talking about other stuff. But um, yeah, that's that's something we can test. We'll we'll shoot an AR into a wall and show you what happens to it, and uh, shoot a handgun round into a wall and show you what happens to that as well. Um, here's a good one. If I have a license to carry and my wife does not, and something happens and I get shot and she picks up my gun, is she going to be in trouble for using it? Depends how she uses it. I mean, that that's the short answer. Does she yeah. use it well? Does she follow all the laws? or she's shooting at somebody who's trying to get away, even though they were the bad guy, the threat has passed, they're no longer a threat, and now she's hunting the person down through a yeah. parking lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it depends how she uses it. But yeah. in and of itself, no, mm -hmm. I, I would say no. Yeah, whether or not you have a concealed carry permit or a license to carry a pistol, you still have to follow all the rules and regulations, all the laws that cover self-defense actions. So. If she's with you and there's a chance that she might have to pick up your gun, she needs to know those laws just as, as well as you know those laws. So, In a place of business, a person comes in with a weapon and is threatening people inside this place of business. Would I be legal to protect myself and others without getting myself into a bunch of trouble? <laughs> Well, uh, you can always get yourself into a bunch of trouble. I mean, let's just start there. Uh, if you take any kind of action, you are risking, at a minimum, legal trouble, even if you do everything right. I'm sorry to say that. Hopefully, I didn't hurt any feelings, but that's just reality, okay? It's the system we live in. Sorry, I cannot fix that. Um, but look, again, it just comes down to what do you do? You can only use deadly force not to protect things, but to protect people, and only when, mm -hmm. in essence, they are threatened by deadly force. So you have to make sure that your response is effectively proportionate. Keep in mind, the exact wording will change. Make sure that you're not exceeding the exact wording of wherever you are if this should happen. Um, but you can't use deadly force to protect stuff, only people, and then only to stop it from other deadly force. Yeah, objectively reasonable force. And, and that is, you know, what would a reasonable person think of what you did involved in there? So um, only use deadly force if you're facing an imminent deadly threat. So um, the follow-up question to that is, what if there's a no guns allowed sign in your business? And I know where this is gonna go. So <laughs> you go first. Uh, if there's no guns allowed, should you be using force at that point? Well, look, number one, I don't know what the penalties are if you are outed for using deadly force. Um, so I don't know if it's a felony in a particular location, wherever that may be. I don't know if it's a misdemeanor. I don't know if you're facing prison time. I don't know if you're facing this or that or the other thing. And let me be clear before we go any further. 
no one here is telling you to go out and break laws, all right? We're just weighing the consequences of should you find yourself in this particular circumstance. But you also have to weigh the consequences of your particular decisions under those circumstances. So if the choice is, as the expression goes, being carried by six versus judged by 12, you make your own decisions on that. But again, no one's telling you to go out and break the law. Yeah, absolutely. You have to know what the laws are in your area. And 50 states, 50 different rules for what's going on around here. In some places, carrying a gun where there is a no gun sign is nothing more than a civil ordinance uh, violation. It's a, it's a local ordinance violation. Some places it can be up to a felony. I know that the very first concealed carry case in Wisconsin happened in a, in a business that was posted for no guns. And the, the uh, good guy was in there with his gun when the bad guy came in to rob the place. And suddenly the no gun signs were down from that business, you know, the next time people showed up there. So um, you need to know your local laws before you do anything and don't break them. Because if you're breaking a law, you know, even when you're trying to defend yourself, it just makes everything more complicated. And it, it also is going to color possibly what the prosecutor with the jury may think about you of, look, this is already a bad guy. How do we know? He was already breaking the law when he said, when he claimed he was trying to use his firearm in self-defense only. And the prosecutor is going to roll their eyes at the, at the jury. So just keep in mind that you're setting yourself up for that. And also keep in mind that just because something may be a civil ordinance violation, if you do it in this particular place in your state, if you go into a post office, now it's a federal felony. So yeah. things can also change and escalate depending upon where you are, even in the same jurisdiction. Again, check your local listings. And we have a question asking now, what, what should we do while we're carrying while driving in a safe glove compartment, um, normal carry position, something like that? Um, from, a, from a tactical element, you know, how you're carrying while you drive, I don't move my gun. I carry it on my hip at 4 o'clock, and I learn to lean forward to draw if I need to or something like that. Other people will put it in a, a driving carry holster. Some people will go with a shoulder holster or appendix carry. But again, I'm going to defer to Tom, and you better be following all the right rules because if you cross into a different jurisdiction, now you're in trouble. Yeah, and, you know, just kind of, I'm not trying to, to, to scold or get judgmental on anybody, but carrying in a locked glove box, I mean, Kevin, <laughs> is that, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're already laughing, yeah. like, is yeah. that glove box carry? This is yeah. something back when I was a prosecutor, back in another lifetime, that, that I remember wardens and cops joking about, well, you know, most people are going to be glove box carrying, and how much good is glove box carrying from a tactical perspective? Yeah, you're, you're not going to be getting to your gun in a carjacking situation, you know, right. so. It's, yeah, I mean, you, people, your, your firearm is going to be by far most effective, if only effective, where you can immediately draw it, which is generally never the glove box, because let's be honest, if it's in your glove box, is it going to be sitting there ready to go, or is it going to be buried underneath some maps, that aspirin bottle, yeah. and three other things? Yeah, at least. So, All right, so if a person were to pull out his firearm in a crowded place, felt threatened, legitimate threat, and not have to use it, what happens at that point? Again, it depends what you did with it. If you were indeed legally threatened to the point where you could use deadly force in self-defense, then you are going to be almost certainly privileged to also at least threaten the use of the same deadly force. In other words, if you pointed it at the bad actor, you're probably going to be okay. If, however, you felt like something might be escalating to deadly force and you chose to at least produce your firearm and you pointed it at somebody and the situation never got there, maybe that de-escalated it, maybe the person just ran away, 
Many states also have basically a pointing statute or recklessly endangering safety statute where you may not have been entitled to use that deadly force. Again, some states are going to consider it a use of deadly force, possibly, even just pointing at somebody even though you actually never shot them. So you have to make sure that if you're going to be pointing or firing at someone, that your state, check your local listings, may actually count that as a use of deadly force. So make sure that you're ready to go there before you go there. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, win that race to 911. You know, if you pull out your gun for any reason, call the cops. Yeah. yeah. We, we were actually talking um, off camera before we went live. I was talking about a real case I have where, uh, or years ago now, where uh, a good guy with a gun who had never been in trouble before had to use it in self-defense against a bad guy with a gun. And the bad guy won the race to 911. And my client well, he became a client, and that pretty much tells you everything yeah. you have to know. Uh, ultimately, thankfully, we were able to get all the charges dismissed, but winning the race to 911 probably would have meant he never would have been my client. He mm -hmm. would have just been a victim. Yeah, So absolutely. So um, brings us to a question about what you want your clients to say when the police arrive. If they're involved in a deadly force incident and the police show up, and it's someone who has you on retainer or, you know, they know that they're going to call you. Right. What would you tell those people to say? Well, before we even get that far, let me tell you this, is that I've dealt with more than a few self-defense firearm cases. And there are some things that are pretty consistent between them. Uh, it starts with what is the bad guy going to do? Is the bad guy going to try to ghost, in other words, just get away and disappear and melt into the jungle? Or is the bad guy going to hang around or make some sort of statement? because those are two very different situations. If the bad guy tries to get away, you will be the first statement and very possibly the only statement, barring witnesses, cameras, and so forth coming into play. Um, if that's the situation, again, if we had perfect knowledge, then I'm gonna want you to say very minimal. Give the description of whoever it was that attacked you, make it clear that they were armed, if you knew that they were armed with a, if you saw the firearm, yeah, it was a black semi-automatic, whatever. They pointed it square in my face, um, and I, you know, I, I am prepared to sign a, a victim statement, and this is the direction they went, went in such and such a car and so forth. Try to give minimal information, and the reason why is because I've had 100%, I mean, as innocent as innocent as innocent clients can be, um, who have tried to be really descriptive for law enforcement, and even though they were completely cleared of all charges at the end of the day, uh, they got things wrong. Yeah. And they got, I mean, they, they didn't know what block they were on. They gave the wrong block. And if they had just kept their mouths shut, I bet they actually would have looked a little bit more innocent to client or innocent to law enforcement. Instead, the cops are at the scene scratching their heads saying, hey, he gave us the wrong block. Oh, is that is that fishy? And the guy was just trying to get everything out there for him. So mm -hmm. that's scenario number one. The bad guy disappears. Uh, scenario number two, which is probably the far worse of the two, which is the bad guys around, they make a statement. Uh, I assure you, their statement is not gonna look anything like your statement. And I also assure you as well, that my experience, anytime you're in a position where a bad guy's pulling a gun on you, they have been arrested more than their fair share of times. They know how to play the system. They know how to manipulate people, and that especially includes law enforcement. Sorry, Kevin. No, but it, it yeah. just is what it is. They've, they've been through the game. They know what to say. They know what not to say. You said it very nicely. I say everybody lies. So <laughs> That's the blunt way. All right. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. So they're going to say that most, and the most common thing I see, I see out there is they claim that you pulled the gun first, and they were defending themselves, right? So this is a situation now where law enforcement is going to grill you and grill you and grill you. Because keep in mind, 
it's not their fault that they don't know what's going on. They got a he said, he said story, and they're trying to figure it all out. Um, it's tough. Generally speaking, the safest thing that you can do is give some minimal factors out there as far as, look, they pulled the gun first, they pointed at me, this is where they took off to, or, or a couple things about what happened, and then zip it. And the reason why is because, again, you're under stress. You don't even know you're under stress, but you're under stress. Your adrenaline is surging. Uh, you have chemicals that are just ricocheting off the insides of your head. You may have been awake for 20 plus hours. You weren't prepared for this. You didn't pick the time and place. The bad guys do, all right? And uh, you're, in my experience, you're gonna screw up. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. But at, at a minimum, even if you say all the right things, you're not gonna say everything. You're just gonna say some of the right things. And the result is, and the analogy I like to make, that the metaphor I like to make, is that it's kind of like opening up that Christmas box with all the lights inside that you just kind of tangled up and threw in there. And if you, even if you say everything right, the officer's gonna open it up and they're gonna see some things and they're gonna close up the box in my experience. They're not gonna do a complete statement. They're not gonna get everything out in chronological order. And the clients, even if they say the right things, I'm yet to see a case where they say everything uh, that I want them to say. And it, it just leads to problems down the line. And if we're not trying to explain why my client said the wrong block, we're trying to explain why they forgot to articulate the fact that, yeah, when he was pointing a gun at me, I thought I was gonna die. Yeah. So that's why I did this. And sometimes it's compelling as to what happened. Sometimes it's easy to fix. Other times it's not. So like at a lawyer, I gave a five minute explanation to a two sentence question, uh, but there you go. It's, it's a tough question, it's a great question. Well, I was just gonna say, that was very thorough, Tom. Um, <laughs> and the follow-up question there is- That's is, cop yeah. speak for too long, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Um, the follow-up question is, Kevin, what do you want to know at a scene as an officer? And like Tom said, what I want to know is every damn thing in the world. I, I want to hear it all right away um, so I can you know, figure out what's going on and get this thing done. But in, in an ideal world, like Tom said, I want to know who the witnesses are. I want you to point out any evidence. You know, Did he use that screwdriver over there as a weapon or, or is that just a screwdriver over there? And I want to know which way the bad guy went and what he looks like. So um, that's probably the safest thing for you to do at that point is to provide minimal information, but stuff that can help us with the investigation. Um, I, you know, I'm coming from both sides of the fence. I don't want you to admit guilt, but I do want you to tell me kind of what happened and where things went. So, um, and police officers at the scene, especially at the scene of a shooting, are gonna be asking lots and lots of questions. So it's, it's probably in your best interest to remain silent and get your attorney. And you're gonna be answering the same questions over and over and over. I mean, I, I've had clients mm -hmm. who will get grilled for six or eight or 10 hours and they're being asked the same questions. They may be asked the same question 10 times mm -hmm. over that span. And you know what? You reword your answer once differently and now we've got honesty and integrity issues. Right. So it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough, and that's part of the reason why I say, look, raise your right to an attorney. And folks, that's different than raising your right to silence. You gotta raise your right to an attorney. And the way you say that, you just have to communicate something to the effect of, look, I'm not answering any questions without speaking to my lawyer, or I want my lawyer, or something along those lines. There's no magic, this is what it is. You just have to communicate the fact that you want an attorney, you're not answering any questions without an attorney. Be polite, be respectful, there's no reason to be a jerk about it, but you need to make sure you raise that right. Keep in mind, if you start talking again, that could be deemed as a waiver of that right too. So yeah. you need to stick to your own guns. Right, yeah, if you volunteer information, we, you know, the, the gloves are off for us. Absolutely. So, um, next one up is uh, what about if there's family member witnesses? I know if I'm involved in a shooting, I can invoke my right to an attorney. 
What happens to your family members if they were along with you when, when this uh, shooting went down? Well, again, as we already talked about here today, um, if I've got three witnesses, I've got three different versions of the same story. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, I would want to ideally, in Tom's perfect world, I would want to have everybody give a very minimal account, get some sleep, get some rest, write down what happened, reread it. You want, you want to know what I tell clients? Here's what I tell clients. I say, look, you've been through a traumatic experience, whatever it is, regardless of why they're hiring us for whatever, whether it's a drunk driving, a drug case, or whatever it is. And I tell them, look, write down what happened, but don't press send, press save on your email. Come back a day later, reread it. You're going to see things that you missed, and you're going to say, oh, that's not quite how it happened, and you're going to reword it. Do the same thing here, and I would encourage you to take your time. Remember, if law enforcement is involved in a self-defense shoot, Nobody is, should be pressuring them. No one usually pressures them to give us statements right away. They usually have 48 to 72 mm -hmm. hour cool off. They often have a chance to meet with a union attorney and they come in on a brightly lit day after having food in their stomach and sleep at their, at their back and they come in and they give a statement at that point in time. Folks, you deserve the same thing. Yeah, and, and remember too, as a witness, you're giving a voluntary statement. You know, unless, unless police officers are arresting you for doing something, um, they can't just arrest you for being a witness and force you to make a statement. So your statement is voluntary. Take your time and make sure that you get it right. So right. Um, we also have a question. Next one up is uh, um, when should we call the USCCA? You know, on our card, it says, number one, call 911. Number two, call USCCA. But remember, those dispatchers are going to want to keep you on the phone for a long time. So when would you suggest that people, USCCA members, call the USCCA? Well, number one, anytime you're making any kind of phone call, you're obviously dividing your attention. So you need to be, we are taking an assumption into play here, which is the fact that you're safe, all right? Step one, make yourself safe. Uh, bad guys, as you've heard us talk about both here and elsewhere, they tend to travel in packs, all right? So just because that one bad guy broke in your house, there's a really good chance that his buddy's in your front yard and his other buddy's in your backyard. So don't assume that just because you may have someone down or someone ran out, don't assume that your house is empty. Don't assume that that was the only bad guy because you're probably making the wrong assumption. Get to a safe place. If you have a family, if you've got kids, make sure that everybody's properly corralled, if you will, uh, and make sure that nobody's running around to do anything crazy or nuts or running out to the yard or, or anything like that. So number one, be safe. Number two, when that race to 911, yeah, the 911 operator is going to want to identify themselves. I don't have a, a strong uh, school of thought, Kevin, mm -hmm. as far as uh, you got to hang up the phone, because I know some trainers say, make the call to them, give them some of the things that we talked about here today, you know, right. the make model description of the vehicle, where it went, what, things like that. I know some people say, keep the phone live, but just set it down. Right. And then stay vigilant yeah. about what else might be out there. I know some people who say, hang it up and call your lawyer. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, as somebody who's received those phone calls from the scene of incidents, I don't like that, all right? I want yeah. you to survive it. And surviving it means being engaged with your surroundings because when the police arrive, they're gonna be barking out orders because again, they don't, they don't know what's going on. Right. All they know is they've got a guy, maybe multiple guys. They know that there's, been, there's gunplay. Uh, they know that there's been shots fired, maybe not. And they want to be safe just like you. So um, by all means, if you want to call the USCCA, I would say call the USCCA. Something I always tell folks at a minimum is you, the person with the firearm, you're a really good chance you're going to be going into custody and not mm -hmm. for a few minutes, probably for at least a handful of hours. So make sure that your spouse, your friend, your family, your loved one, make sure they have the USCCA's contact information because there's a really good chance that it may be your spouse, your roommate, whoever it may be, 
they're actually the ones who may be making that call. Yeah, survive the incident first, and then we can get the attorneys there to help out afterwards. The initial, right. the initial response is you survive the incident, and then things will slow down and even out, and then you can make your calls to your attorney in the USCCA right. and stuff like that. All right, we have somebody asking about uh, in a crowded room or in a crowded area, um, should you drop to a knee or try to take a low-angle shot shooting up to make sure that you don't hit somebody else? Um, Yes, it's, it, it's good to think that way because you're thinking about target isolation and you, you might not get a pass-through shot and, uh, and shoot into someone else, but every situation is going to be different. And these are the kinds of things that you have to think about what is going to be the best and safest shot for you to take. If you can get a little bit lower and shoot up, great, that might work. But if you can't and you still need to stop the threat, you need to stop the threat. Well, I, I would ask, how many times do you go to your range and practice shooting towards up, towards the sky or, or yeah. up? Yeah. And the answer is probably zero, unless you live and yeah. you have access to just the salt dunes or something yeah. like that, right? The sand dunes. Um, you're, you're saying that you're going to be one of the most stressful situations of your life using a concealed carry firearm, so a short, shorter sight radius than maybe what you often practice with. And you're going to tell me you're going to try something you've only seen in the movies now? Mm -hmm. That just screams problems. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying I hope you're practicing dry firing that, that drop, draw, and shoot at home with some snap caps or something else rather than doing it for the first time in this yeah, situation. Under stress yeah. and, and thinking about that. So um, another question, is it legal to take warning shots, shoot up in the air or down in the ground to stop a suspect from attacking me? Um, I, I will make an inappropriate comment. Tom, uh, do this in lawyer speak. <laughs> um, well, now you have me waiting in, with yeah. bated breath what the inappropriate yeah. comment is. Uh, I would say this. Look, again, we already talked about the fact that even pointing the firearm at someone could represent deadly force. Certainly discharging a firearm in the direction of someone else will almost certainly constitute deadly force. So I would say that if you're in a situation where you need to and are lawfully privileged to employ deadly force, I would strongly consider whether or not if you didn't use that deadly force, you're doing warning shots. Were you really in a situation that required deadly force? Because those two things seem to be at odds, right. right? If somebody's threatening you, what are you doing screwing around with a warning shot? And if you're not being threatened, why are you doing a warning shot? It's both, yeah. both ways have that question. Yeah, and uh, if you're shooting up in the air, where's that bullet going to come down? Okay, you don't know where that's going. That's reckless in itself. If you're shooting down on the ground, you know, where are the particles that are coming out there when, when the bullet fragments and when the, the pieces of asphalt go flying? Who else are you going to injure? So shoot the bad guy. Don't just shoot around the bad guy. Shoot the bad guy. What was the yeah. bad thing? I, no, I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm no? keeping it to myself. Okay, as, yeah, all right. Okay. I'm not enough. allowed to swear on, on broadcast television. <sighs> fine, so. fine. Um, <laughs> uh, does it make things worse if, in a self-defense incident, both you and your wife shoot the bad guy? Well, hopefully it stopped the threat. Um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're shooting to stop the threat. You're shooting to save lives, not take them. So, no, I don't see how that would make it worse. If it, if it mm -hmm. stopped the threat and everybody goes home safe, fine. Now, the only downside is that um, I hope that you're both USCCA members because you're both going to probably need different criminal defense attorneys. So yeah. that's going to be an issue that's going to be involved there. That's twice the legal fees, in essence. I hate to say it, folks. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. And, be realistic, though. <laughs> and, and I appreciate the fact that there's something inherently unholy about giving money to a lawyer. I, I get that, that it's kind of a, a dark art. I, I appreciate this. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about doubling your attorney's fees at yeah. that point. And, and again, if the deadly threat was there and you had to stop the deadly threat, 
Anybody within view of that deadly threat has the legal right to engage that deadly threat. So it's, it's you know, will it make it worse? No, you're not going to be any in any more trouble. You're just going to have double the, the you know, reports and, and everything to fill out. So. Right. And, and just one other thing, too, is that, guys, you, you may be tempted to try to curve the truth to try to protect her. Uh, or try to keep her out of the incident. I'm going to tell you right now that any thorough investigation that law enforcement engages in is going to figure out real fast that something here doesn't add up. That's how you go from a legal situation to an illegal situation. So yeah. I would encourage people, if you're going to make statements, don't lie, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. Don't, don't start lying. Right. Um, here's a question that will probably get the most feedback of the day. If you're walking your dog and you're attacked by another dog, and it's a known fact that, that some dogs can be dangerous. Um, can you shoot the dog if it's attacking you? Right. Yeah, and um, I'm gonna say yes, self-defense. You can shoot the dog to protect yourself. You can't shoot the dog to protect your dog. Your dog, no matter how much you love it, is just property in the eyes of the law. So that becomes stuff defense. You know, if a, if a big mean dog comes out and starts attacking your little, you know, squeaky toy dog, um, you can't shoot the mean dog to save your dog. Something that I would say is that um, there are certain cases that kind of break the mold in the justice system, and a lot of, a lot of the rules just change a little bit. Um, gun cases, what we're talking about right now, firearm cases, this is one of them. It's obviously, as we all know, has become one of the third rails of American politics these days. So that's something where you can expect prosecutors, judges, and juries just to respond and handle it differently. Any offense involving children, that's another one that, you know what, things are just going to happen differently. And a third one I always tell people are, are pets, uh, animals. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know who that prosecutor is, and we don't know what their views on animals are going to be. Uh, I can all but assure you that someone on that jury is going to be somebody that thinks that we should be saving uh, pet lives above people's lives and you are going to be presumed guilty with no chance at being innocent. So check your local listings as far as what the laws may be in your state to see what you can do. But I will tell you that I see the most extreme reactions out of people in my line of work as a criminal defense attorney and as a former state prosecutor when it comes to firearms, when it comes to children, and when it comes to pets. So be prepared for that. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, here's one, and because you're an attorney, it makes you that close to being a politician. Oh, so. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, how can we help push the national reciprocity law? Well, okay, so I've got a little bit of a different take on it. Um, I know that a lot of people are very much pro, let's get national reciprocity. Um, I am a little bit more skittish about it, and, and I think we may actually have a differing, differing views on this, Kevin. My concern is that, do I really want reciprocity and firearm regulations ruled out of Washington, D.C.? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I, do I trust Wisconsin more? Probably. Would I feel differently about that if I was in New York State? Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I view this as a mixed bag. I am not somebody who's saying national reciprocity, I want this ruled through the national level. I don't view this as the world's best thing. I think that there's going to be a lot of garbage we're going to have to swallow with it if and when that happens. And until we see what that total package is going to be, I am, as you're probably sensing, extraordinarily hesitant. Uh, because keep in mind, even if it gets passed and it's great right now, 
Uh, you know, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out in California changes some interpretation, and folks, you are going to regret, you're going to rue the day when Washington, D.C. started regulating this stuff. Yeah. So I am extraordinarily hesitant to let Washington become involved in this. And I'm a big fan of the Tenth Amendment. I want local control of, of things like that. Um, national reciprocity would be good, but you're, you're our right on the money when you start saying, you know, okay, now with national reciprocity, do we have a national training standard or do we have, you know, national laws that we have to follow? So right. it's a, it becomes a very big question. And just kind of on that point, I just want to also just mention the fact that on our website, uscca.com forward slash laws, L-A-W-S, that that's a fantastic website yep. that we have, fantastic resource folks to get yourself a quick crash course if you're going to be traveling or if you're curious about laws in other states, um, familiarize yourself. Yeah, and download the USCCA app because then you can carry that reciprocity map right on your phone, in your pocket, wherever you go. So um, we have lots of great resources for you in there. So next question up from Steve. He wants to know, is it okay to assist a police officer on duty or off if something were to Go down. I like it when people say, go down. <laughs> go down. Yeah, something's going to go down. Um, I'll give you my input on this. Please, okay? by all means. Um, if I'm involved in a shooting and someone is shooting back at me, just let me do that shooting because if guns start going off somewhere else, I'm going to be thinking someone else is shooting at me. But if I'm involved in a ground fight and it looks like I'm getting my butt kicked, jump on in there and start punching the other guy because, <laughs> you know, as long as you're not punching me and you say, hey, officer, I'm here to help, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with that. But uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to see other guns going off around me um, because that's just going to take my focus away from what I'm just seeing in front of me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as somebody who has known and worked with uh, more than I think your normal amount of, of persons, law enforcement officers, I think that most of the time, what you just described is a very consistent reaction of what mm -hmm. I've gotten from a lot of them. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with how comfortable they are with the firearms. Again, this is just... This is my reaction to having had mm -hmm. similar discussions with a lot of men and women who wear the uniform. My experience with folks who are um, very comfortable and, uh, and, and trained with firearms is exactly what Kevin just had, which is leave the shooting to me. And if we're at the ground, if we're at ground and pound and something <laughs> like that, yeah, if you're willing to throw in you know, your two cents and it looks like I need it, please come in and help, yep. right? Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, start shooting into us. No, right? no, no, don't right, shoot yeah, at me. Don't, don't <laughs> shoot it, right. Let's yeah. just, may, maybe that bears repeating. Yeah. Don't shoot at, at the two guys who are wrestling on the ground, all right? Um, but what I have noticed for a lot of folks who maybe are less familiar or less trained with firearms, this also goes for folks where maybe you have a little bit more of a personal connection. You live in a small town. You know, you're used to saying hi to the cops. They kind of know you. They know that you're not one of the problems in the community. Maybe that's a different rapport. So I think that, for my two cents, I think that the answer changes with place and time. Uh, depends what your relationship is with law enforcement. Depends on what's the size of the community. That particular officer may give you a different answer. If you ask 10 different cops, you may get at least two or three different answers. So, but that's part of the trick to this is, remember, number one, we need to survive the encounter. And if you pull out your firearm to try to help them and instead they're lighting you up, you didn't help anything. Yeah. So um, there's really no right way of addressing that other than just kind of highlighting some of the issues and letting everybody kind of think on it. Unfortunately, that's just the best answer. Yeah, there's a, a lot of times when there's not an easy, clear-cut answer for, for yeah, stuff like absolutely. that. absolutely. Um, John wants to know, can I get involved in an active shooter situation to save loved ones and other people? 
And I, I think, yes, if you, you can, um, but we've talked about that. Do you yeah. really want to? And right. Yeah. That, John, that's all I can say. Do you really want to? You know, if, if you've got to go that direction to save your wife or child or, or someone that you really care about, yep, that's the decision on you. Um, legally, you're justified in doing that. Right, yeah, you can defend other people. It's, it's defense of third person, just like you have self-defense laws, you have defense of other laws, but keep in mind that you have to make sure you understand that you are actually defending the bad guy, or pardon, you're defending the good guy. See, there it happened. Mm -hmm. you're, you're defending the good guy, not yeah. the bad guy, right? You turn the corner, two guys are shooting each other. Who's in the right? Are they both in the wrong? All of a sudden, you jump in and throw your legal future in with this half and not that half? You better make the right call. Yeah, you got to know exactly what's going on when right. you get in there. So here's a really good question. Why is it so difficult to retrieve your personal weapon from the police yeah. after a defensive incident? Well, number one, you have to be clear to the incident. So let's start there. Otherwise, your firearm could be used as evidence against you in any kind of criminal action, criminal lawsuit, as it were, charges that's going to be following. And if that's going to be happening, they're going to be holding that through the pendency of those charges. All right, so that's step one, is the cops are going to hold it as evidence. Number two is let's assume you actually have been cleared of the charges. Yeah, it can be extraordinarily difficult to get firearms back. I don't have a good answer for you for that. All right, um, I have seen judges try to require that people produce original receipts of purchase. Uh, to, in order to prove ownership, of course, ignoring the fact that the firearm was seized from that person. Um, I have seen all sorts of crazy things. It seems to correspond, I don't want to drag politics into it, but frankly, it seems to correspond largely to the politics of the judge in that county. The more anti-gun they are, the more difficult it often can be. Um, not always, but there's definitely more than a correlation between the two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Um, looks like this is going to be our final question, but boy, it's kind of a doozy. So, uh, oh, good. Um, as, uh, as you say, uh, bad guys often run in packs. So uh, if you're involved in an incident and you shoot the bad guy and somebody, maybe an accomplice or maybe just a witness, walks up and takes his weapon. This bad guy goes down and the weapon falls to the ground. Somebody walks up and takes that weapon and, and decides to walk away with it. Okay. What are you supposed to do in that situation? Well, if they're not threatening you, don't shoot them. Okay. Right? So Absolutely. step one. We're only using lethal force, deadly force, when appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's a bad situation. There yeah. is no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Because what they're setting you up for is something we already talked about today, which is the fact of, yeah, no, this guy just came up and robbed us. Yeah. And I've, I've had cases where that has been the claim. All right, This guy just came up and robbed us. So um, look, I'm sorry, but that's, that's what's fixing to happen here, so to speak. Yeah. All right. Um, my suggestion is if there's any witnesses, if you've got <laughs> friends with you or anything like that, that yeah. you better identify them and make sure that yeah. they saw what just happened. Don't take your eyes off that bad guy. I mean, yeah. you want to talk about a bad guy? The bad guy is the guy who's changing evidence in the case, knowing what they're about to do, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's an awful situation. Unfortunately, number one, again, don't make a bad shoot because that's, you want to talk about making, screwing up the rest of your life, that's screwing up the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's a bad situation. Identify those witnesses. And, and Stat. Maybe we can go back to one of the other questions and hope that there's somebody filming this and, right. and maybe catches this action right. on, on, Check Facebook, yeah, right? yeah, on film or, <laughs> or something like that because um, I can't think of a worse situation on, on trying to figure out what to do. Is this person picking up the weapon to use it against me? What right. am I going to do at that point? Are they picking it up just to steal it? They just want it? I'm not taking my eyes off, off that guy. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, for sure. Uh, you know, that becomes crazy. So... 
Well, uh, this brings us to the end of our time. And like I said, Tom, as my therapist says, your hour is up. <laughs> it's a hell of a team. So, yeah, it, it's, it's working very well. So uh, um, let's talk about making sure that we get the proper uh, um, uh, reviews out there for yes. the USCCA and Tom Greaves. So I'll let you take that away. Sure. Well, folks, look, we love doing this. We love giving you guys this content. And we hope that you found it particularly valuable and maybe even as fun as we have kind of making this, to be honest. Um, in order to keep this stuff free for members, in order to keep this ball going, it would be extraordinarily helpful if you just take a moment, it's 100% free, to leave a review. So you should see a link say, leave Tom Grieve a review and leave the USCCA a review. Folks, I can tell you, speaking from all the attorneys and staff at our office, it really means everything to us. We also change which websites this go to. So if you've left a review before, please, please, please take a moment. And look, we're not asking for anything crazy, but if you felt like we had a decent experience here, it's the internet, four out of five stars is kind of a failing grade. So we would ask for a five-star review if you choose to leave a review, something generic, you know, about being great attorneys or something. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And likewise, the USCC as well, Folks, I don't have to tell you how great of an organization this is. They love to hear your feedback. All the members here, all the team members here, they love hearing and seeing the feedback. Again, four out of five stars, kind of a failing grade. That's right. Especially especially happy with comments about charming and intelligent hosts on, on, on webinars like uh, this. Yes, particularly yeah. happy, but it's never happened. Yeah, so. I know. Well, maybe, that, maybe that'll come around maybe this, this time. time. And don't forget, this is your member-only content, the Ask Attorney webinars. And also, every week, we're giving you member-only training content. You'll see that appear in your inbox every Saturday. Check that out. We're here for you. So until next time, I'm Kevin Michalowski, and Tom, we're Asking the Attorney.